Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with Ephraim. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show. Perfect. So uh, from what I understand, uh, you have a lot of experience in Burma, and I think it's really important for us to, um, one, kind of understand the conflicts that are happening around in our in our world, and two, learn from things uh, from any place that we possibly can, just to make us better all the way around. Um, so before we really begin, would you mind doing a quick introduction of yourself? Yeah, sure. No problem. Um, yeah, so um, my name is Ephraim Matos, and um, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, graduated high school in 2010, uh, joined, the, joined the Navy, was a SEAL for a few years, and then I got out in 2017. Um, during, my, during my time in the SEALs, I was not a medic. Um, I was a, a radio man um, and sniper. And then um, in, in 2017, I got out of the Navy, and I basically started doing um, humanitarian aid work in conflict zones. And that has resulted in me, unfortunately, being put in a lot of medical situations using my basic TCCC capabilities. Um, and then I also uh, was EMT qualified for for a short time. I did not maintain the certification. Um, but so that's the highest level of medical training that I have. But um, right now I run an organization called Stronghold Rescue and Relief that I founded right after getting out of uh, getting out of the Navy. And basically what we do is we take veterans and we go into conflict zones to provide um, medical care and also to protect refugees in any ways that we in any ways that we can. Um, so that's the big reason why we're in Burma. We've been working in Burma for for five years um, in different in different capacities. And one of our biggest uh, missions there is uh, medical care because it's a very um, austere, very difficult environment to work in, very difficult to get medical care um, to people at the point of injury, which we'll, we'll dive into a little more. Um, so that's that's primarily my focus right now is, is on Burma. I just got back from a, um, basically I spent about six, um, spent about six months in Burma over this last year um, with a, basically like a one month break right in the middle. Um, so mo mostly dealing with um, uh, the security situation, and then also definitely had some major uh, medical scenarios that we had to, that we were faced with dealing with. Yeah, no, it sounds like you're the perfect guy. So, um, you know, all I know about what's going up, what's going on in Burma, is what I gathered from Rambo Four. So, uh -huh. <laughs> um, in preparation, I rewatched Rambo Four. So, I think I'm caught up to speed. But just in case I miss something. Uh, would you mind giving us some kind of background of this conflict? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Rainbow Four is actually, you know, obviously it's a very, a very dramatized version of what's going on. But in in general, all the different things that you see happening in there, how the Burma Army is treating the um, ethnic minorities and all that stuff, in, in general, all of that's actually very, very true. Um, so, obviously, it's a fictional situation, but um, that that conflict and a lot of the atrocities that you saw in there are very, very, very real. Uh, and I've personally witnessed a lot of the same stuff that you see in the movie. I've seen it myself with my own eyes. Um, um, 
So basically what's going on, so at the end of World War II, the British uh, left Burma, and long story short, they basically left the uh, the ethnic Burmese in charge um, of the country because uh, the ethnic Burmese c- uh, controlled the central portion of the country. They left all their military supplies, for the most part, with the Burmese. Now, the problem was the Burmese had actually sided with uh, the Japanese and had fought against the British, but then they switched sides when they saw that the Japanese were losing the war. Uh, so what ended up happening is the um, the ethnic Burmese, and again, not all not all ethnic Burmese, but um, the central Burmese military government, they took control and started basically trying to take control of the entire country. Um, and they want to, the, the, the goal is for them to basically uh, subjugate all the ethnic minorities around all around all the areas of the country. Now the problem is um the ethnic minorities obviously are going to fight back. They're not going to they're not going to put up with that. But then the other thing is um that the regions around the the um borders of Burma are a lot of them are very mountainous and so um there's very natural kind of uh strongholds if you will um that the ethnic minorities are able to kind of defend themselves from. So because of that, neither army is strong enough to completely defeat the other army. It's sort of like the situation in Ukraine. Uh, so it's this never-ending war that's been going on for, uh, you know, 75 years or so. And so that's the situation we see today. Um, most recently, um, back in, as of a few years ago, the Burma military, which controls the government, right? It's like if General Petraeus and General Mattis got together and they were like, hey, we're going to use the Marines and the army and we're going to control, we're going to we're, we're going to now be the U.S. government government, right? That's the situation that's happening in Burma. So um, as of a few years ago, there were some sort of fake quasi um, steps toward democracy. They were just sort of formal and they weren't actually real. They didn't, the, the people who were duly elected in Burma weren't, at, they didn't really have any power. Um, but two years ago, basically the Burma army just completely did away with, um, any of those sort of fake steps that they were taking toward democracy. And they were just like, no, we're still in charge. And so, but because of that, the people, the, the people completely revolted. So even people who weren't being, who had not been being persecuted before that, they decided to rise up against the Burma army. And so, for the last two years, the civil war has spread not just from the from the outer regions of the of the country, but through the entire country itself, in the cities, in the places where the Burma army used to have their their safety and their strongholds. Now those places are hotbeds of resistance to the Burma army's control. So the wars become significantly more violent and much more prevalent around the entire country. Right. Oh, that's horrible. Um, mm-hmm. So just uh, you know. I just did a quick Google search, so I, I'm not at all an expert. Um, but I also saw, um, you know, Chinese and Russian influence. Uh, have you yes. noticed that? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the Russians in particular, they sell fighter jets to the Burma army. Uh, so the Burma army, um, makes they primarily make their own weapon system so they have their own um they have their own rifle that they make they have their own um assembly lines for making all that stuff with from raw materials but the fighter jets they buy specifically from russia they just recently bought a, a new batch of fighter jets and i've personally seen these fighter jets many times uh flying right over my head um bombing uh villages bombing uh you know whatever they want to bomb under whatever pretense they want to bomb so definitely a, a russian influence there no doubt um mostly just in the russians are, are helping keep prop the burma army up and helping them uh, with supplies mm-hmm. the chinese influence is primarily in the northern part of the country near the chinese border 
Um, and so the, one of the unique things about the Chinese is that they kind of play both sides. And so in some ways, uh, they'll, you know, they'll side with the Burma army because it benefits them. Sometimes they'll side with the resistance groups because it benefits them. Um, in the end, China just wants to have influence up over whoever's in charge. And I don't, it, my personal opinion is I don't think the Chinese really care if the Burma army stays in charge. They just want to make sure that they have influence over who whoever does end up becoming in charge if the Burma army was to fall at some point. Yeah. Well, uh, try to just keep your uh, toe inside the door, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think I understand what's kind of at least what's going on. Um, so, I mean, are these just occasional clashes or are there actual like full on fights going on? This is a full-on war. This is a full-on uh, war to the extent that the entire country like is is engulfed in it. And I know it's 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 kind of difficult to understand that or like sort of visualize it because when we think full-on war, we think the Ukraine-Russia conflict uh, with massive you know front lines and troops and you know tanks and all that stuff. Um, the same level of I guess intensity is happening in Burma, but it's much more uh, guerrilla versus um, you know versus conventional forces. So it's an asymmetrical war um, to an extent where the Burma Army has has more control. They're backed by fighter jets. They've got a lot more ammo and and um, much better weapons and things like that. And their um, their guys are much much more heavily trained. But uh, there was all the different resistance groups, all the pro-democracy groups, um, they're everywhere. And so it's a it's a massive, um, I, I guess, so since since um, since 2021, um, the war has now become more of the Burma army is trying to occupy a foreign country as opposed to them occupying their own country. Um, because now they're now the entire army is in an inhospitable environment. I would I would. Um, equate it to some of the challenges that we would see like in the US military um, in Iraq, you know, facing Al Qaeda sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the moral lines are totally different. So I'm not equating those two situations. But uh, the Burma army in this case is like the American military trying to uh, maintain control of a country that doesn't want you there. And that's, uh, that's sort of the situation that we're seeing right now. So it is it is full on war um, with large troop movements on both sides, massive attacks on both sides, um, days when dozens and dozens of soldiers Soldiers on both sides are killed in, in large-scale battles, and then there's also the the constant um, guerrilla attacks. There's the constant mortaring, surprise attacks from the Burma Army onto civilian populations, and um, the whole the whole thing's a is a it's a full-on war. Yeah. Okay. So um, just from that description, I can imagine the type of injuries that you're getting. Um, but what but what are you actually seeing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I so I run an organization called Stronghold Rescue and Relief, and um, what we do one of our one of our primary missions is to provide is to provide medical care. Um, in, we're only working in one particular sector of Burma. We're not all throughout the country. We're just in kind of one main area. Um, there's an endless need throughout the entire country, but um, so the place where we work, um, we're seeing a lot. We do see a lot of war injuries. So currently, we run three ambulances, three three truck ambulances, and then we have um, a boat ambulance as well. Um, and we run them full time. They're, f they're staffed by the uh, local people because you'd be surprised, like a lot of the local people have lots of good medical training. What they don't have is the supplies 
or the organization to make anything happen. So our role there is we provide them the supplies, we provide them the organization, we provide them the trucks and the, and the know-how and all that. And then they are the ones providing medical care for their own people um, using supplies that we purchase. And so we're there on the ground with them, mentoring them um, as opposed to doing everything for them. Um, that's sort of a sidetrack. We call it uh, charity with dignity. It's about enabling people to fish, right? Instead of just giving them a fish. Um, anyway, so... With that being said, our, our patients um, who our ambulances are transporting, um, we see literally everything. Um, we have everything from uh, pregnant women with you know ectopic pregnancies to uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a kid fell out of a tree and he was impaled on a stick. Um, and so we, our, our ambulance evacuated him. Lots of war injuries. I think two days ago or maybe three days ago. Um, I, I get all the updates from the from the uh, guys in the field. Um, there was a civilian stepped on a landmine, uh, blew his blew his leg off. Um, just this morning, I got a, a message of a uh, uh, um, a soldier who'd been uh, shot. I, I'm not sure if it was a gunshot wound or shrapnel uh, in his right chest, and he was being evacuated on our ambulance boat. So we see all of that stuff. But the other thing too is um, our our patients are also, we're dealing with sort of clinical medicine uh, issues as well. So there's people with malaria, um, people with just different ailments, uh, elderly folks who are, who are you know, uh, not doing well. And so our ambulances transport all of that. And we're the only dedicated medical asset um, for, for tens of thousands of people in this one particular area where we work. Now, where we take our patients is there's a, there's a, um, a, pretty pretty solid um medical clinic being run by uh being run, run by another ngo um and they keep their identity a little bit secret and and what they're doing but um they're fantastic they're an american ngo and they're um they have actual doctors they have an actual um they're able to do surgery they're able to do really really good stuff in the middle of the jungle so you you walk into their operation room and it's just a, it's a big tent that's been sterilized and they have um, operating tables and lights and they can do uh, anesthesia and they can do all they can do everything basically that they need to do um uh there to to keep patients alive um the next level of care after that clinic is uh, oftentimes they'll get um patients patients that are very severe and that can't be fully taken care of there uh, they'll be evacuated out of the country to to different routes using different ngos and different uh, actually not not there's no other ngos that i know of that do the evacuations it's the um it's the local karen uh government so we work with the karen tribe in burma uh, so it's the local karen government uh medical care system that um evacuates the people out of the country and gets them uh to a higher higher level of care okay so you know just i guess we're in your head, picking a, a random case, um, how long would it be from, you know, you get the word that somebody needs you on your for your ambulance service, go out, you pick them up and get them back to that uh, NGO that has, you know, real doctors in it? Yeah, so that that process can take. Um, I'll, I'll say under under best case scenario, let's say we have a soldier who's wounded at the front lines of where the fighting is. From the point of him getting injured, um, it's going to take at least four or five hours just to him, just for him to get to the bank of this very large lake, uh, which is our which is one of our biggest sort of natural obstacles. That's going to take him four or five hours to get there. 
Um, once there, that's where we have our initial dedicated, um, that's where our boat ambulance is. That's where our full-time staff is. So the, so basically four or five hours just to get to the boat. The boat takes at least an hour and a half, sometimes two hours to get across this man-made lake, uh, cause there's a lot of obstacles and trees and things like that in the, in the lake. And then once they get to the far side of the lake, um, the, there's, um, there's always an ambulance on standby there. And so the, the, the medics will restabilize, reassess the patient. And then it's at least, uh, three to four hours from that point to get them to the, um, based on the condition of the roads to get them to the actual doctors who, who, who really know what they're doing. Um, so you're looking at anywhere, I mean, best, absolute best case scenario, if everything is running smooth and everybody's ready to go, um, you know, nine hours, nine hours is your fastest is like, is the fastest it could be. Realistically, it ends up being probably double that. Um, if you're injured at night, if you're injured in a uh, more difficult location, the enemy is constantly moving around. Um, so you're looking at very, very long travel times. And just this morning, actually, I was talking with, um, the, the, the local, um, ethnic leader there at the, at the, at the, at the hospital or at the clinic that we send our patients to. And he was telling us that right now, over the last couple of days, our ambulances can't drive because the roads are so bad because of all the rain. And so I was talking with him. I was like, well, how long does it take to, to move a patient? And he was saying it takes two days to carry a patient from the bank of the lake um, up to, um, up to the clinic it takes two days because they have to carry the patient on a bamboo pole. Um, and they put the patient in a hammock on the bamboo pole and they, if they can get enough people to help carry, it takes two days. So our ambulance service cuts that time from two days down to about four hours. Um, mm -hmm. and that's if the driver isn't even driving crazy. So the, 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 amount of time it takes to get medical care, like legit medical care is, is very, very long. It's a very, very challenging environment. So I imagine with, you know, such long transport times, those, those medics and whatever level medical personnel are on that boat and in that ambulance after the boat ride, um, do you, or does somebody have like a, like a medical training or medical refresher or some kind of uh, way to keep their skills up because yeah, that's all you got. Yeah, absolutely. So the um, the clinic that we take our patients to, um, they're not just a clinic; they're also a school. So they have a five year uh, PA program. So they have I I forget I think it's maybe eight to ten. Um, students every year that graduate but yeah they, they put them through a five-year program so that the medics who come out of there they're all they're all again they're all people from that area they're all you know people who live in that who are from that tribe um they come out with a very high level of, of training and they're able to um, get lots and lots of experience at the clinic itself so our um the, our ambulances are staffed by um local people from you know who, who are from the area who have pa level uh training there's also local um sort of i guess we call them like military medics um their training uh, to be perfectly honest is really not good and i've got a, a good story about that too at some point um but so there there are medical legit medical professionals that are that are that are working these cases and again it's 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 all the locals and they're they are able to get refresher training one of the things that we do at stronghold is we do provide medical refresher training and even initial stop the bleed training um i wouldn't say quite to a teachable c level because it's just it's just just not the case but um we're able to get them um for the for the, all the different soldiers and even the civilians we provide training for civilians um 
we this last year um, or excuse me a year and a half ago, um, I sent a team into Burma and they they trained a group of um, I think it was about ten um, trainers like trained the trainers on basic basic teachable C how to make improvised splints all that kind of stuff stop the bleed if you have basically nothing on you what do you what do you do um, and those trainers went to I think they went to sixty different villages and they trained hundreds and hundreds of villagers on how to just do these basic, basic things that, you know, are very rudimentary for us, but the villagers have never heard of. And keep in mind, the villagers are always at the point of injury because they're always the ones getting attacked. They're constantly getting bombed. They're constantly getting, you know, uh, having, having all, having all these different injuries. And there's just no way for them to, um, you know, get, get medical care. It's going to take hours and hours for a medic to get there. So, um, you know, we, we do provide some of that very basic training, but the PAs and those higher level folks, they're trained at, and they get their training at the, at the clinic run by the other NGO. Perfect. Um, so you mentioned a, a story. Uh, I love stories. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, great. So, um, th this actually goes, this story actually goes really well into sort of the prolonged field care and, and is sort of a, a personal experience that I had with the situation. So, like I said, I run an organization called Stronghold Rescue and Relief. We have, we currently have three ambulances and a boat ambulance. However, as of six months ago or six or seven months ago, we didn't have that. We were in the process of initially setting, setting all this stuff up. Um, and because it's obviously it takes time it's it's a it's a difficult process so during that time i was at a i was at a basically at the front line um of where the where all the fighting is and um, one one of my one of my roles at that point was basically to help provide medical support to any kind of situation or something that pops up um at the time i had two interpreters with me um so there was a there was a big battle right around dawn in one of the uh in, in one of these remote villages um, there was, we were in two different locations, um, where the, where the fighting was happening at the other location, there was one of the, one of the pro-democracy good, good guys was, was shot through the knee. Um, and it took him, it took, he was shot around 6am and it took him, it took them two hours to evacuate him to get over to us. They had a, they had a local medic with him who, who, who was able to stabilize him, which was good. Um, so however, around 8am, I, uh, got a second second set of eyes on the patient, and so I, w I went up to uh, to look at this patient. He was laying in uh, laying in a, a Skedco litter um, that they had used to transport him. That was something that Stronghold had provided, and and it was we were training the soldiers how to use it. Um, and so I get over there to look at this patient, and I knew that he'd been shot in the leg, but his face was just ashen, was just ashen white, you know. And he's a you know um, a dark skinned Asian guy, and I'm like, why is your face like whiter than mine? And I'm like, you just had a simple gunshot wound, like you shouldn't be looking like this. You, you know that look, like like this dude looks like he's gonna die. He's not doing well. And so I went and looked at him. He was conscious. There was two medics, two local medics working on him at the time. And um, I was like, something's off here. So I went and I tried to look at the injury, but I couldn't see the injury. Um, what they had done was they had taken um, three bandanas and had used sticks as windlasses to try to, to stop the bleeding. And I was like, ah, I don't know, something's off. So I pull up my trauma shears. I cut open the, the, the soldier's leg. Uh, the, the, his his pants, and um, I expose the injury, and I look at it, and there's blood is still is still oozing out of the exit wound, and there's bits of bone fragment and all that. So he had definitely been shot right through the knee, um, and so there was the the bone had been fractured. 
And clearly what had happened, one of his arteries had been sliced, and so he's still bleeding. And the, the tourniquets they put on him were good enough to slow the bleeding, but they were not good enough to stop the bleeding. And so when I cut open his pants, probably like a liter of blood that had pooled um, in his pants because he was laying laying on the ground in the Skedco litter um, just came gushing out. And I was like, no, 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 no. So I, I grabbed a, uh, I grabbed a, one of my personal tourniquets, a cat tourniquet, threw it on his leg. And, uh, of course I, he's, you know, he started, uh, I told the guys, I was like, hold him down. Um, cause like, this is going to hurt. And so of course he starts screaming cause it hurts. I'm like, all right, that means, that means I did, did it right. And I watched, I just sat there and I watched the, the, the blood, um, uh, coming out of his leg. I watched it slowly uh diminish and ultimately turn off just like slowly turning off the spigot right uh like just like turning off the water spigot so under that conditions like under, under those conditions i was able to stabilize the patient and was like okay he's not going to die now um so what ended up happening was both of the medics that we only had two medics with us and that we were with a group of i don't know um there was maybe a hundred or so soldiers in this particular area and there's still fighting going on by the way um there's still mortar fire sniper fire um, there's been heavy fighting in the morning the fighting has died down but it's still going on um there's still explosions going off everywhere and we're at the front front line well the two medics take the patient with the gunshot wound to the leg they take him and they both go with him and the next level of care um is actually it's like six hours away um uh in a very very remote area but they both left with him which is obviously not cool um but they just didn't really think through through that situation um so i go back to um I, we go back to one of the villages and um that was around again 8 30 9 a.m well then at 11 a.m um, I got a call on the radio. One of my interpreters had been hit in the head. Um, and they were like, you need to come look at him. And I'm the only quasi medic. Again, I'm not even a medic. Um, but they were like, you're the only medic. And one of your interpreters has been hit in the head. So I went and, um, to, to I, it took me about an hour to get to, to, to get to the patient, to get to my, uh, my friend. And when I got to him, he'd been hit in the head with shrapnel. Um, they, they had bandaged him up a bit, but some of his brain was exposed. Um, and he was still, um, he was not, he wasn't dead yet. Uh, he was unconscious, but he wasn't dead yet. He was, you know, kicking and he had covered in vomit and all that and all that. Um, and so that was around noon when I, when I got to him. And then we had to basically, I, there was nothing I could really do for him. I checked the injury, I checked for additional injuries, not much I could do. Um, so it was around noon. Well, basically for the next six hours, we had to um, carry him in a, in, a, in a series of carts and then also hand carry him for miles and miles and miles uh, across the open and through the jungle to get him to the next level of care, which is like a basically a paramedic level uh, medic. And so the only way that we were able to do that, though, because we had to carry him for so for so long and keep in mind, it's it's, you know, 105, 110 degrees in the middle of, you know, it's super humid. It's it's awful situation. We've been exhausted. We're exhausted because we've been up all night due to the fighting. And um, so what actually ended up happening was 20. I think it's, I, f I forget the exact number. I counted it. I forget the number off the top of my head, but it was around 20 or 30 villagers, local village men came out to help carry the patient. And so they were all taking turns on the Skedco litter, um, six guys at a time, just carrying him for miles and miles. Um, around 6 PM, we finally got, uh, my, uh, my, my interpreter again, was like one of my best friends. Um, his name is Babo. And we finally got him to, to a, a real medic, like a paramedic. We met him in the jungle who was, he was coming to meet us. 
And um, we he did an initial assessment. Um, Bubbo's O2 SAS were so low that they weren't even registering on the uh, Pulse Ox. Like, so he was basically he was he wasn't going to make it. The only way to get him to that other clinic was to be to would be to go through enemy territory, and it would take um, you know. So even if they were able to get through enemy territory in the middle of the night, which they probably could, they were saying he's going to die on the way. He's he's not going to make it. Um, and he's 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 gone. So um, at that point, I had to say goodbye to my friend, and um, um, we then hopped in the we, we left we left the we left him with the medics to try to do as much as they could for him. And then I went back. I had to go back to the front line because they have no medics. None of the medics had returned. So I go back to the front line. I get back to the front line around one a.m. Well, I get I don't know maybe three four hours of sleep, not even. Um, and then I wake up, it's, you know, five, five thirty, And the first thing the guys tell me is, Hey, we got confirmation. Babo died, you know, 10 minutes ago or something. So, um, I found that out and I was, I was dispatching some messages to, to my, my crew, some other guys who knew him. Um, so the local leaders just say hey, like, Hey, this is just, this is what happened. As I'm sending out these messages, the village I'm in explosions just start going off inside the village. And um, basically, the Burma army was doing another attack. They were doing a counterattack on this village. Um, and so that's around, you know, around 6 a.m., a little bit after dawn. So the Burma army attacks into this village were, you know, they're, they're dumping mortar and 40 millimeter everywhere on top of us as they're doing a frontal ground assault to clear the village. Um, there was one, one of the guys who'd been in my squad the day before. Um, he was, he took a round right through the head and was killed instantly. And then there were two wounded, but, um, the, the group that I was with didn't have the wounded with us. So I never ended up, uh, seeing those guys or, or treating those guys. Um, so that was just, you know, another, unfortunately, just another day at the office, um, you know, dealing with the situation. Now I say all that because so three weeks later, so I survived that. Three weeks later, we have our ambulances are up and ready to roll. We have our first ambulance, and uh, we're putting the final touches on it, making sure that we can, um, you know, transport our first patient, making sure everything's organized. And um, as we're doing that, one of the I'm, I'm back at the clinic, back at this, uh, back at the good clinic where there's the real doctors. Um, uh, one of the one of the guys on staff there, he says to me, he's like, "Oh, hey, like the, there's a, a wounded soldier just got brought in, and they're probably going to need to transport him tomorrow to get him out of the country." Um, as I thought, oh, great. Okay. I'm, you know, very, very curious to see who our first patient's going to be. So I go down to the clinic to see who our first patient is. Keep in mind, this is three weeks after the battle. I walk in to the hut and it's the soldier who I'd put a tourniquet on three weeks earlier, who'd been shot through the knee. He's the patient. He's the very first patient our ambulances are going to transport. And I was just like, and of course I look at the situation. I'm like, dude, what the hell, how, what, like, what is happening? And so I, I spoke with the guys and basically the area, um, the evacuation route had been completely cut off by the Burma army. So they actually had to go back. It, it's difficult to explain sort of the, the geography. Anyway, long story short, they tried to stabilize them at the, at, at this very, very remote outpost. They couldn't stabilize them well enough. And so they had to hand carry him back out to where the battle happened farther out than that come completely around cross the lake get him in a, in a truck because at that point we didn't have ambulances at the lake or at the at the bank of the lake either uh, on the lake or next to the lake and uh so they had to carry this guy all the way up um to the clinic and it had taken three weeks 
And so finally he had arrived the night before and they were like, hey, we need to evacuate him out of the country. And of course, he's in a really bad way. But um, so I went and talked with him. He was in good spirits. Ultimately, he got evacuated out of the country. The, the stronghold ambulance uh, took him and passed him off to the they drove. I think it's like a five or six hour drive to get him to where they to the next level where they would uh, you know evacuate him out of the country. And um, ultimately, he lost his leg, but he survived. So it's just it's one of those situations where um, so actually fast forward a little bit, if I may, um, about a, about a month later, I was um, going to speak at a school in Nashville. And uh, during while I was traveling uh, to the to the school, um, I got a I got a message, and it was an image of a, of a wounded soldier. Um, and this wounded soldier had a tourniquet on his leg, so he'd, he'd been hit in the knee uh, by a shrapnel. His knee was just completely just shattered and destroyed. Uh, but he had a he had a tourniquet on his leg in the right spot. And it was showing the local Karen guys loading him, loading, loading this patient into one of our ambulances on one of the litters that we had provided. And um, this patient had been had been taken to this clinic. And then the doctors, he, he got there just in time. So the doctors afterwards, after they stabilized him, they messaged me and they said, if he had been 15, 20 minutes later, he would he'd be dead. Um, and so the. Like that's one particular case of a soldier who 100% would be dead right now if we hadn't put in all of this stuff, if we hadn't put in the ambulances and the and done the training and put the and put the tourniquets with the guys at the front line and we provide all those supplies as much as we possibly can. Um, so my my point with that is it was a a quick sort of success story showing the full level of care from the front line, a, a tourniquet getting put on um, a patient evacuating him using a sked co-litter, getting him across the lake. We didn't have the boat ambulance at the time, um, getting him across the lake and then getting him to an ambulance, getting him loaded up. And the best part of that story is that none of my Western team, like none of the foreigners, none of the stronghold staff was in the country at the time. Everything was 100% run by the locals um, on their own using the supplies and the training that we had given them. And then we were back there a few weeks later, but even when we were gone, the system still worked. Um, yeah, so that's that's just a one particular instance of um, the the difficulty of getting the medical care, uh, but then also the importance of uh, getting getting it done as quick as possible. Yeah, I mean, and also a successful story when it comes to training um, just locals, um, whether it be medical care or really anything, not just um, flexing our Western power and money and just buying a bunch of stuff and just kind of dropping it off, you know, working yeah. by, with, and through uh, the locals to get them exactly what they need with what their capabilities are, at least at that moment. And then education to kind of uh, upgrade their capabilities. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. But, uh, you know, the kind of the, the medic in me. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. obviously they're, they've gotten at least tourniquet training, some kind of hemorrhage control training, mm -hmm. um, you know, mentioning that patient that had been bleeding for a very long period of time. Do they, do they have medics at least capable, um, of getting like IV or IO access, administering blood? Do they, are they, are the, the medics out in the field able to do those things? 
Yeah, the, the medics in the field are able to do IVs, and they're actually pretty pretty good in the clinical uh, sort of setting. the The problem is is the conflict combat setting. Um, one of the big issues I saw with those with those two medics in particular, really really brave guys, really good guys, uh, with uh, dealing with the patient who'd been shot in the leg. But you know, for example, they didn't have trauma shears. So, like, the idea of exposing the wound and looking at it, like, physically getting eyes on it, never crossed their mind. So, they, they'd they been dealing with this patient for hours, um, but they never hadn't done that. The patient had an IV in. Uh, they had, you know, three different windless, uh, you know, improvised tourniquets on him, you know, and they were doing their best to monitor the situation. But um, there was definitely, uh, that was that was one instance I saw a big gap in the sort of their, I guess we'll call it TCCC, basic TCCC stuff. Yeah. And they don't have they don't have blood in the field. Um, they can get blood and do and do all that um, at the at the actual clinic. But in the field, there's zero zero capability of that. Okay, okay. Um, and and you know that that tourniquet thing that is not unique at all to uh, Burma. I've seen anybody and everybody do the same mistake. So yeah, <laughs> so yeah. that's just one of those things that. Just through training and practice, mm-hmm. you get good at eventually, right? Yeah. Um, so it's just listening to that story and uh, just talking with you now, it seems like logistics are an enormous kind of issue. Um, you're bringing in, you're bring, your organization bringing in things. I'm sure other NGOs doing the same. Um, what, I guess, what are the logistic constraints? Um mm-hmm. Like tourniquets, they're using improvised tourniquets. So I'm guessing things like that are a difficult bandages. If it sounds like they're using improvised bandages. Um, so um, you know, that's one area. Like what other things are, are difficult to come by? Sure. So we'll talk about we'll talk about logistics in, in two in sort of two phases. The first is how do we get like how do we supply? How do we get supplies and stuff in? So that's that's very difficult. Um, and I'm not going to go into the details of, of how we have to do some of that. Um, but I will say so. One of the biggest obstacles, or probably the two biggest obstacles, with getting supplies into where we need to get them. Actually, I'm, I'm sorry, I need to make it three. Um, is, uh, one is geography. So we're dealing with mountainous regions and roads that are uh, dirt. Um, so in dry season, they, hey, it's fine. It's all good. As soon as it rains for five minutes, everything stops working. Um, the second issue is communication. So um, coordinating and communicating with people that are just a few miles away is is a nightmare um if if they don't have access to the internet if they don't have access to they do uh what the, what the local tribe we work with does is they have like radio relays where somebody's verbally re- doing a radio relay to the guy in the next mountain over and that's how they pass their information so things so communication moves very slowly and then you also even if you can communicate even if you do have the supplies and you have a plan to get around the geography the issue is like well now you need trucks now you need motorcycles and so um you're dealing with a very you know war-torn impoverished place and so a lot of times trucks and um things like that are simply not available um and so in the particular sector where where we work, um, we are we are actually the only the only NGO that actually runs ambulances. There's other there's a couple of other NGOs and they have trucks and things like that that they'll use to move supplies. And if someone's injured, of course they'll throw them in the back. But there's no dedicated actual honest to god ambulances with 
medical professionals, you know, O2 tanks in the back, um, proper, uh, proper, uh, bedding, um, extra supplies for the medics, fully staffed on call. You know, there's, there's nothing like that except for, except for ours in this one particular area that we work. So the, so the, the logistics of, of making it happen, we're, we're, we're literally just making it ha happen on our own <laughs> where there's no established sort of supply routes that, that exist. And so it's like, we're, we're making all that stuff up, um, as we go. Um, so the challenges are enormous, um, huge shout out to the guys on my staff, um, who, who handle it, uh, particularly Jason and Adam, they, they do an incredible, uh, amount of work, um, and, and figuring, figuring out the logistics and all that. So the, the first, the first part of logistics is like, okay, how do we get supplies in? So the other thing too, with that, so let's say we do get supplies in and let's say we have whatever 500 tourniquets that we're going to give out to guys. Well, they are in all these remote outposts all over the place, all throughout the jungle. The only place you're the only way you're going to get to these places is through walking. And so you can only carry, you can only take what you can carry. And so um, you're limited by how quickly you can walk, how far you can walk, uh, if they know that you're coming, because they might not even be at their little outpost when you get there. Um, and then also being able to do training with them. So it takes weeks and it takes months to, to train and to provide the medical supplies to, um, two guys. Um, luckily now we're, we have a very, very good relationship with like the local tribal leaders. And so our, our way of, um, exponentially increasing our logistics capability is we just work with the locals and we're like, we go to one central person who we know and trust who has, who, uh, who's completely responsible and has, who we, who we have worked with for years. And we go, Hey, here's the supplies, make sure it gets out to blah, 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 different places. And then they do it. And it take, again, it still takes time. So that's the logistics on getting stuff in. Now the logistics on getting stuff out, um, is, essentially the same. So one of the big issues is communication. So patients are injured and nobody really knows what the injury is. We don't know if we need different supplies. We don't really know where the person was injured. Um, we don't, it, a lot of times we don't even know exactly where you're going to pick up the patient. So they're trying to coordinate all that stuff. And as you're moving through the mountains, you completely lose um, you completely lose even radio communication. So even the radio relays don't work. So if there's any kind of issue um, during the hours of transporting the patient through the jungle, which there is all the time, um, you know, rivers are flooded, log in front of the road, um, whatever, bad guys moving around. Um, there's, there's these constant challenges and you can't communicate that those are the, that those are the issue. Um, so the logistical challenges are basically getting, getting the patients, uh, getting the patients out of there on, on vehicles. One of the big issues we have is again, geography. So where we, we have to evacuate patients across like particularly war patients, conflict, uh, patients across this massive man-made lake, um, that takes again, like up to two hours to cross. And that, so what we've actually done is we've actually built a road, uh, stronghold. We've, uh, had a road built. It doesn't, it doesn't work all year round just because again, because of the rain, but we built a road around that lake. So we can now take patients from the front line in a truck, drive them around the lake and then, you know, drop them off to ambulances. Or if we needed to, we could forward stage ambulances if we know there's going to be a lot of fighting. Um, and then we also have the boat. So there's, that's one of the ways that we're kind of dealing with it. The biggest logistical issue happening right now is the weather. So there are uh, massive, massive amounts of rain. You wouldn't believe the videos and stuff I get of, of these rivers that are relatively small. And then the, just the, these raging torrents of, of these rivers. Um, and they knock out all the bridges, they knock out all the man-made bridges and things like that. But the issue is, is a lot of the, um, 
uh, a, lo- a lot of the NGOs who've been there for, for years is instead of investing in any kind of infrastructure, um, because it's expensive and, um, it doesn't look as, as sexy, um, you know, uh, but it's, it's, it's so important. And so one of the things we're going to be doing this next year is actually helping them build wire, wire bridges and things like that. That'll be, that'll be good all year round because right now, um, uh, for example, again, that, that, that gun, or the, the wounded, the wounded soldier that was, that, that came in today, you know, it's going to take him two days. It's going to take him two days to get to this clinic. And so it's actually good timing, you know, for this podcast. Cause I was asking, I was like, I was like, what specifically do we need to do to, to increase this? And they said bridges, which is what I expected them to say. And I was like, all right, so like, we're going to be building bridges and, um, so these rivers, a lot of times are impassable. So what will have to happen is, um, the, if you're carrying a patient, you can't cross at the, at the bottom of the, of the, of the mountains, because that's where the river is, is the worst. So you have to go up, you have to go up the mountain. So you have to carry the patient up the mountain and then you can find a spot where it's only knee deep or waist deep. And then you can carry the patient across this large river at that point. So extremely difficult, excessively difficult in the rain, in the mud. Um, and then one of the other things too is the, the, the roads, uh, the roads get completely washed out. So our ambulances, when they drive around, um, they have, they have, uh, you know, chains on the tires and all that, um, just to make it happen. And even then still, like I said, for the last like two days, I think the, the trucks have even been grounded because there's just too much rain. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I imagine with with all these logistical constraints, um, transportation constraints, we've gotten really good at just making stuff happen. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of I guess improvised things are are guys using? You mentioned you know improvised tourniquets. Um, are they doing like chest seals and like? Yeah. So um, when it, when it comes to when it comes to that kind of stuff, um, the Yes. So we, guys will use improvised chest seals, plastic bags, thing, things of that nature. Um, for splints, obviously guys are using sticks and, and mm-hmm. bandages and, and bandanas and things like that. Um, the, um, again, the, the locals, one of their tried and true methods is the bamboo pole with the hammock that they put the patient in and they just have somebody carrying along the IV on a stick. Um, as far as that though, I haven't seen any, or besides that rather, I haven't seen too much, um, massive, uh, imp- um, improvisation, um, with, with anything, with anything super crazy that the biggest issue is just, um, the, the biggest thing that I see is people who are, they improvise more in their, in their ability to, um, to transport. And, um, there's, again, I have like videos of, 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 um, locals carrying a patient on a bamboo pole across a raging river and the, the, uh, on a bridge that's completely, it's no longer, uh, horizontal. It's now vertical. Um, but they're, but they're laying down sticks and they're like holding onto the bridge and passing the patient off to, to other people on the other side of the bridge. If you slip and fall, you're going to die. There's a 1000% chance you're going to die. Um, and the, so they improvise in that way and just, and, but it's more of just courage. They have the courage to do it. Um, and incredibly courageous people. Yeah. That we, that we work with. Nice. Um, so, you know, you mentioned, I guess they get to, you know, the good clinic, um, mm-hmm. where they get, sounds like probably a lot of amputations from what it, some of the injuries and tourniquet times, uh, you're yeah. talking about, mm-hmm. um, which is super unfortunate. Um, how do you, and, and maybe you're not able to answer, but, um, like the convalescent leave, like obviously you can't just 
have patients just build up and build up and build up. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just too resource constraint, uh, too much constraint on your resources. How are you, how are they, you know, sending people out who go, who, you know, who gets to go into the other country, who gets put pushed over to another village, who gets just, you know, hang out around here and we'll kind of half keep an eye on you. Yeah. So they, that's, um, um, from what I understand, again, it's, it's, it's not us taking care of the, the, the convalescence where we completely just handle the emergency, just get the people to the, to the clinic. But, um, so I don't want to speak for them too much, but what I, what I will say is like, what they do is they have a, they have a pretty good system. Um, what they do is that I, I don't know the exact number of patients that they can keep in, in their facility, but they do keep patients there longer term. Uh, for example, we transported before we had an ambulance, it was actually the imp- impetus for us to start an ambulance. We transported a pregnant lady, um, who's seven months pregnant. She'd been bleeding for about 12 hours in her hut. Uh, we threw in the back of our truck and got her to the, um, got her to the uh, hospital or to, to that clinic. And a month later, we actually take, took her home. But during that month, she had stayed there at the clinic. So they have an actual sort of, uh, they call it um, like inpatient department where you know, they take care of people for, um, for as long as they need to take care of them. Now, it, like you said, it's a very resource intensive and so culturally, what happens if, if you have somebody who's at the hospital, the family comes and helps take takes care of the person. They bring food from their own village. Um, luckily, food typically isn't something that's super scarce, except for in emergency areas where there's fighting. Um, so the family will, you know, bring food, take care of the person, help wash the person um, as long as possible. They only evacuate patients who are sort of in a life or death situation where they need that higher level of care. Um, and then that's something that they coordinate with the the tribal leaders and then they, the doctors make that call. It's a case by case basis. Um, patients only stay there as, as long as, uh, as is needed. And then they're eventually taken back to their, to their, um, to their villages. Now that's another logistics problem. How do you have somebody who's recovering from an injury? How do you get back to your village? Well, one of the things that our ambulances do as well is when we drop off patients, cause we have, we have our, we have, uh, three ambulances. One of them is stationed at the clinic. Two of them are out in uh, out in more forward locations, uh, in different in uh, in opposite directions. And so, what happens if any any of the patients who are who are good, uh, who are who who need to go back to their village, go back to their area, um, anytime the ambulances come in to bring in a patient, um, the 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 people can then hop a ride, you know, can take a ride back to um, at least closer to their village, maybe not directly to their village, but closer to their village, and then the villagers, you know, take care of them from that point. Nice. Um, do the lines, so like you mentioned, you know, a village being attacked, do the lines shift that much or like, it sounds like this lake must be relatively safe. That's like a key point. The lake is relatively safe. Um, kind of, but even not really like the bad guys at any point could kind of cross that lake and, and cause problems. They bomb the the opposite side of the lake. So MIG fighters, you know, Russian MIG fighters come in and, and, and drop bombs all the time in the, in those areas. So, um, that's actually, we had a, we had a facility, um, where we would do medical training at and, uh, like that our organization runs, it was, you know, small facility. Um, but that place got bombed. They brought in Russian MIGs and hit us with uh, four or 500 pound bombs. Luckily, nobody was killed, um, and a couple of the bombs dudded. Um, but yeah, it's like we can't use that facility anymore, obviously. Um, and so, there, it is still dangerous. Um, the 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 thing is, like, so the, the the Burma Army, the way that they operate as well, is they're basically working out of FOBs, just like uh, forward operations bases. 
um, just like we would do in the U.S. military. And then they leave on patrols for sometimes days at a time to go in and attack villages or, you know, clearance operations, whatever they want to call them. Um, and then they go back to their FOB. Um, and so, you know, basically your proximity to one of these FOBs is sort of um, your level of, of risk. Like if the closer you are, the higher level of risk it is. Um, so there are some places that are relatively safe. Your biggest threat is just the bombings. Um and again, the, the same logistics problems that we have, the Burma Army also has. So um, imagine trying to, to drive the truck up this single road, like there's only like two roads in the entire area. Imagine trying to drive up that, but there's, you know, a thousand angry gorillas who, who, uh, who, who want to, like whose, whose family lives across the next hill, you know, who live who, and who are running away, right? Those dudes are going to fight tooth and nail to keep you out of their territory um, and protect their families, and rightfully so. So um, because of that, the Burma Army has done large clearance operations where they bring in hundreds of soldiers and with air support and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're not really seeing that right now because the Burma Army is more on the back on their back foot. They're kind of staying in their fobs a little more. Um, but they do these random attacks where they'll leave and they'll just put ground forces in to go attack villages. Um, there was one case, I actually just wrote about it in Black Rifle Coffee's um, magazine, Coffee or Die. Um, I just had an article come out, I think, last week. Um, one of the situations that happened just a couple miles from where I was at was the Burma Army went into a village uh, at night. Um, right as right after sunset, I think, and they went in. Uh, uh, a bunch of villagers ran away. Uh, most of the villagers ran away, but 17 didn't make it out of the village. And so the Burma Army captured these 17 villagers who were actually ethnic Burmese. They weren't even ethnic minority group. Um, they were ethnic Burmese. And um, eight of the 17 people um, in that group that were captured were children under the age of 10. Um, and then, of course, they began to commit horrible, unspeakable atrocities against these 17 people, slaughtered them all, burned the bodies, stacked all the bodies, burned them, um, and left. And then the next day, the um, the village, uh, the pro-democracy village guys, they came back in and, you know, found the found the um, the location and the video of that uh, as well. I, I had uh, uh, that's in the Black Rifle article as well, um, the video of that of the aftermath of that massacre. So that stuff happens all the time. So I was actually there um, maybe three miles away. Uh, just in another sector setting up, um, you know, setting up medical stuff and, and doing and organizing the, the guys like like we do. Um, when I got that message, they, they sent that video to me right after it happened the next morning. So um, it, it can happen at any point. Like I said, I've been in a village that's been overrun. Um, the Burma Army also, one of their big things is they fire mortars. Um, they fire mortars and they have up to like 120 millimeter mortars. They have like 120 millimeter mortars and they've also got like little uh, 60 millimeter commando mortars that their patrols carry. So that's one of their big, that's one of their favorite weapons. And they'll dump those into any village for no reason, any reason, just in the middle of the night, just just because they'll do that all the time. Um, I got a video last week, I, I want to say, of a 16-year-old boy. He'd been hit in the head with uh, shrapnel from one of the Burma Army mortar explosions. And they sent me the video of his body, his brains. His brain was hanging out, blood all over, on the ground inside the hut. And his mom is screaming um, and, you know, horribly you know, grieving uh, because of what had just happened. So, and like I said, that's just that's just a normal it's just a normal Wednesday getting something, getting videos like that. Um, I have tons of photos and stuff of villagers uh, slaughtered and killed by the mortars and intentionally killed. So it happens all the time. Um, there are, like I said, some of the areas are relatively safe. And that's where we sort of, um, that's where we base out of is the safe areas. But then we go into the very, very dangerous areas to work with the people. 
at the point of injury where things are going to be the worst. Perfect. Um, so, you know, we're getting close to an hour now. Um, would you please, like, uh, you know, anybody who wants to help any, in any way, what is your organization? How do they get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my organization is called Stronghold Rescue and Relief. Um, our website is strongholdrescue.org. And um, so currently right now, we don't take volunteers, for example. So um, we, all of our staff, we, we this is like their profession. This is their uh, dedicated full-time job. So we, we, we work things a little different. We have um, limits on how many people we bring in. So for example, one team, the maximum size is four. And usually we're split up into like multiple teams of like two. Um, and it's people who are on staff. So my point is, if you want to help, volunteering is not one of the ways uh, that we that we offer. There are other organizations that do great work, and you can volunteer with them. If you do want to support the work that we're doing, um, basically, we just ask if you want to support. Uh, uh, we basically subsist off of people who give a monthly donation. That's how that's how we operate. And we limit the amount that people can donate per month during their initial sign-up. Uh, we max it out at a dollar a day. So if people want to um, you know, give a dollar a day to help I mean, become a supporter and help us out, we'd really appreciate it. And we have thousands of people across the country and around the world who, who each give basically a dollar a day. Uh, the average is, I think, 75 cents a day. And that's how we're able to maintain all the stuff that we do and our staff and our and all of our equipment and, and all the ambulances and stuff that we're running in Burma. And then we're also working in other places. We have, I've got a team going out to Mozambique here and next week, and they'll be working with the anti-poaching park rangers. They're going to live with the park rangers. Um, out in the Badlands, providing medical care and training to them. At the same time, they're going to live with them for like a month in the field, um, and at the same in the same conditions that the the Rangers live in. And uh, I'm not going on that trip, unfortunately. But um, you know, so but we we do we do this kind of work in a lot of different places. So yeah, if people want to if people want to help out. Um, we're also on Instagram and social media, just Stronghold Rescue. If people want to check out more of our work and what we're doing. Perfect. Thank you, Ephraim. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.